1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Emily Steiner. Emily Steiner is a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. She's known for her work on medieval literature and Middle English literature and culture. And today, she's here to talk with us about uh, a book called John Treviso's Information Age, Knowledge and Pursuit of Literature, 1400, which was published by Oxford University Press. Emily, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much and thank you for hosting me.
1: Uh, Can you uh, start by introducing yourself, tell us a little about yourself, how you became interested in medieval literature and culture and how you became a professor of literature at Pennsylvania University?
0: Uh, Sure. So I've been interested in medieval culture for a long time. I did an undergraduate degree at Brown in medieval studies and a graduate degree at Yale in medieval studies. And my focus is, yes, on medieval English literature. And I teach in an English department, but always from a very interdisciplinary perspective. So... Like, I'm very interested, for example, in the edges of English literature. I'm very interested in the way that literature intersects with science or intersects with law. Um, I'm also, I think, I've just always been really interested in making difficult and old things accessible and interesting to people like my, no offense, but my, my, my nightmare is having to teach the novel. Um, because I feel like that you have to kind of, your responsibility is to complicate the novel and show why it's complicated. Um, but for me, it's the opposite. Like I need to have the most I like to take like really difficult poetry or really difficult language and try to explain why it's actually relatable and like relatively simple and accessible.
1: <laughs> that was the most relatable thing you said about teaching novel of poetry because in English departments, yeah, you have to make them sound difficult and challenging. Therefore, there needs to be someone to decode um, that that piece of literature. <laughs> so, uh, John Traviso's Information Age. Uh, so maybe you can tell us about how the book came about, and I'll just briefly start by telling us who John Trevisa is. I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know him.
0: Absolutely. Um, so let me just start by saying who John Trevisa is. So Trevisa was a, an Oxford-educated cleric um, at the end of the 14th century who was in the entourage of a very powerful baron named Thomas de Berkeley uh, of Berkeley castle fame. And he lived almost exactly the same time as Chaucer, but is uh, much less known and, and very little studied. Um, And I, I guess I sort of fell in love with his prose. Like I fell very hard for his prose about a decade ago and tried and kind of went from there. Like I tried to figure out like, what is it about this writer who is so little studied and who um is not hasn't been recognized for his um his literary um abilities but rather for his ability to translate Big informational reference books. It doesn't seem very promising, but there is something about his prose that, like, put me into a reverie. And I I've spent, like, the next decade trying to figure out why that was.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, so you briefly told us who he was, and we're going to talk about how well, his contribution to English culture and medieval culture. Uh, What is, let's start with some definitions. What is a compendia, a medieval compendia, and how is it similar or even different from a modern uh, encyclopedia?
0: Okay, so um, I should have said right away, but Tres Visa is known for translating compendia, Latin compendia, um, and for him, one of them was a universal history called the Polychronicon, which was very well known in the day. Um, he also translated a compendium of natural science called On the Properties, Properties of Things, which is all well, very well known, and also uh, a big medieval advice to Prince's um, compendium called um, uh, On the uh, De Regimenum Principum. and. By compendium, what we're talking about is a text that's really like a big weighty reference book that's designed to synthesize and systematize a lot of information about a subject. And something, a a text that um, synthesizes information, but in retrievable form. So it has some system in which people are supposed to be able to retrieve the information when they need it.
1: Sorry, I I forgot to unmute my microphone. So it's more or less similar to a modern encyclopedia.
0: So, you know, the word encyclopedia is a post-medieval word. Um, But I would just, but I use it a lot um, because it's very recognizable. We understand what an encyclopedia is when we see it, the way that it looks on the page. Um, But I would say that an encyclopedia Um, is kind of a subset of a compendium. So if a compendium is like a very large, weighty reference book that's supposed to synthesize information, when we think about encyclopedias, we're thinking about both like many, many short summarizing entries of knowledge, often in alphabetical form. Um, And an encyclopedia, at least in the modern sense, gives you the feeling that it's comprehensive, that it's giving you like the sum total of knowledge about a subject. And there's certain like medieval encyclopedias that do all those things, have like these short entries and they're in in alphabetical order and there's like an index and a table of contents and like a way of retrieving. And it makes you feel like it's telling you everything about the subject. I would just say the one of the big differences um, between a modern and a medieval encyclopedia is that medieval encyclopedias are not wedded to, to saying that they're giving you all the information about a subject. Um, and I, That's in part because medieval writers, I think really operated from a sense that they could never give you all the information about a subject, that that wasn't actually a possibility. That in a divinely ordained universe, only God could give you all the information about a subject. And so they're content to give you a lot of the information about a subject.
1: <laughs> uh, let's, let's talk about the title of the book. Uh, a couple of my friends have seen the book in my place, and I there's always this expression of surprise when they read the title, Information Age and 1400 Centuries. So it's a, there's a very modern ring to information age. And uh, then we have the Middle Ages right in the title. So is it a deliberate choice? Because people don't immediately associate information age with the Middle Ages.
0: Yes. Um, so I, I w- did want to signal something to my readers. Um, and that was that our internet Wikipedia age is not unique in being an information age. Um, and if you want every age is an information age in some way. Um, but I think it's important that information age doesn't mean just uh, mean acquiring new information, but it's also about finding new ways of presenting information to new audiences, um, and even inventing audiences for information. And I'll just just to give you a modern example: um, we, um, at least in the United States, every kid knows about the planets about dinosaurs um and about pokemon um and two of the, those three things are probably real um but there planets and dinosaurs you know used to be the thing that scientists knew something about but there's ways in which um the kind of revolution in children's literature in the 20th century um, made certain kinds of some and not all scientific information available in a form that worked for children. Um, All certain images that are always attached to the planets and the dinosaurs, songs that are sung about them so that you remember them. Um, And so you could say that like for children's literature, for children... Like the 1950s and 1960s were an information age, so because um, that age took knowledge and represented it for children and created children as an audience for certain kinds of information. So that's that's what I'm getting at with information age. That um, and I, though I do think that the 13th and 14th century were a really important information age at the same time that I think that, like, all ages are information ages for somebody. Um, yeah. Uh,
1: so th- I guess that's a perfect segue like, into my next question. On page five in your introduction, you mentioned that uh, there was this explosion of reference books both in Latin and in the vernaculars. So can you yeah. uh, broadly tell us how was general information collected and presented at that time? And another important aspect is that uh, was aesthetic aspect of presenting information also important?
0: Yes. Okay. So um, in medieval culture, broadly speaking, uh, Western medieval culture, the official language of scholarship is Latin. Um, and so when in the 13th and 14th century there's a huge movement to translate a lot of different kinds of latin texts into what we call the vernacular so in english and french and italian and german and spanish and that that's been well traced for literary studies, um, but in terms of the history of information, one of the things that's really remarkable in this period, especially starting in the 13th century and in France, is the creation of many, many different kinds of reference books, really large reference books um, that contain all histories or all natural sciences or a combination of those things that are that were compiled in French or Latin, but very quickly translated um, for lay audiences for non-academic, non-clerical, elite and literate and wealthy, but non-academic, lay audiences. And yes, these exist in very beautiful, highly decorated books with um, beautiful programs of illustration, um, very recognizable illustrations like the celestial hierarchies or the age of man or, um, or uh, the globe. Um, And so, yes. So one of the things that's remarkable about this period is the trans is the the compilation and translation of many, many different kinds of reference books. We can call them for a shorthand um, encyclopedias. And I just wanted to add that something I couldn't get into in my book, but I kind of realized by the end of writing the book that this was also happening um, among um, Islamic encyclopedias. Um, And so that although um, Islamic encyclopedias are, are earlier, um in the thirteenth and fourteenth century, there's especially in the translation of Arabic to Persian manuscripts, you see um, a lot of the of very similar kinds of beautiful illustrated books that contain a lot of the same information as we see um, in French literature. And I would also like to be sort of exploring Hebrew to Yiddish. Um, It's the same kind of idea that you have, you know, a a sort of an official educated language um, that is uh, now the information in which is now being unpacked and translated and illuminated and decorated um, for the use of an elite laity. Uh,
1: Let's talk about... John Trevisa's, uh patron Thomas de Berkeley, who you mentioned um, at the beginning. So, tell us a little about him and uh, how were how were they inspired by the French courts of the thirteen in thirteen sixties and seventies. That's the that's I guess in the chapter one of your book. Can you talk about that,
0: please? Uh, sure. So, Trevisa is translating these. Big informational compendia for this patron. Very powerful, warlike, but also seemingly very educated, unusually educated Baron um, Thomas of Berkeley in the 1880s, 90s, up to about 1402, when we think he died. In the like half generation before, in the 1360s and 70s, when Trevisa was at Oxford. Um, the French court of Charles V was famous for producing these huge luxury informational um, texts um, in French. And Charles V, who was a very well-known bibliophile, um, in 1368, he um, converted the fortress that they called the Louvre into his personal palace in which he established the library, which the core of which is became the French National Library, and he had a whole stable of translators and scholars and philosophers and scribes and illuminators who were commissioned to take um, huge histories and natural encyclopedias and Aristotelian texts like the politics and the ethics um, and to comment comment on them and translate them into French and then to sort of deliver them in these like magnificent, very ornamental books for the Royal Library. And that is not true for the English scene. So in the reigns of Edward III and Richard I, you don't have that same kind of literary court. However, it seems from what we can sort of piece together about this regional court in Gloucestershire, Thomas of Berkeley's court, um, that his like little mini entourage were translating some of the same texts Um, and um, they also seem to have been uh, very peripatetic as an entourage. Um, Trevisa indicates that they did a lot of traveling around France and Germany together. Um, and it seems to have been a very sophisticated, although regional court, where there was, for like a brief period of time, a lot of literary activity.
1: And uh, when it comes to John, Treviso, what was his contribution to literary history because he talked about vernacular as a mega genre and uh, uh, it would be great if we could also talk about his translation of that the, the f- famous Ronald Higden's uh, polychronicon
0: okay so the polychronicon was a history that attempted to synthesize all histories so Higden who was uh, a monk at St. Werberg's in Chester, um, produced in the mid-14th century, this very well-known that exists in many manuscripts, um, this, this universal history, a sort of compendium of all compendiums. And it goes from Adam and Eve to the English history of the present day, but also includes like Roman history and biblical history and papal history. And he tries to get like literally everything in there in this like sort of highly organized form. And so Trevisa very ambitiously translated this giant, like in in modern editions, it's like seven volumes um, and tried to translate it into, into English, which was which made sense as a thing to do because, you know, English is having a revival as a literary language, but it was like a super ambitious choice. Um, and he um, he did this for his patron, um, Thomas of Berkeley, um, who he imagines in the text as his ideal reader and as a reader who's constantly like asking questions and like um Demanding commentary and like raising objections. Um, so he both translates this huge Latin monastic authoritative history into English and he also introduces this kind of like ornery challenging English reader who's demanding more and more information. And so Throughout the Polychronicon, which is a history, this reader is constantly interrupting to say, like, what is the zodiac? Or can you explain this medical procedure? Or, you know, what is Daedalus's labyrinth? And um, so Trevisa's is like constantly glossing like through the through the view of his elite reader who wants more and more information, wants like a mega genre out of like the genre of history, wants all his questions answered about like everything, even if it has nothing to do with history, like what are the best French spas that are out there? Like everything is in this in this history. Um so what in that chapter, what I feel like is the contribution to literary history, um is the idea that vernacular English prose, which is English, you have to remember, is just not a prestigious language, and no one speaks it outside of England. Like, it's it's very, it's still very hick. Um, so, so the contribution is to think that like a vernacular English prose has like the muscle and the flexibility to amass and assimilate all this information, to create like a, an archive of knowledge um, for lay readers.
1: And uh, And he also provides this intellectual and literary rationale for English prose. Is, is that right?
0: Yes, I think it's more in um, the demonstration um, than in any kind of sort of theoretical analysis. However, um, he wrote a preface to the Polychronicon that gives us a little bit more insight into sort of his theory about vernacularity. That vernacularity itself is kind of encyclopedic, um, that it's actually the vernacular that can contain all information, I think is is kind of his claim there, which is very different than like someone like Chaucer saying, I can translate Boccaccio's Decameron, stories from the Decameron into English, or I can translate a French lyric into English. This is saying that like, English itself has the ability to not only translate academic universal knowledge, but also kind of add to it. Like there's something actually encyclopedic about this lay language um, that it can accumulate and accumulate.
1: And he wasn't only a translator, he also... uh... Road book. What what is a dialogue between a lord and a cleric work that he produced?
0: Okay, so this is for medievalists um, working in English literature. This is usually the one text that they know that they, they know about when they know about Trevisa. And this is like a very snappy fictional dialogue between a lordly patron and his kind of scholar in residence, like his, his like flattering cleric. Um, and they're debating between them. They're just like it's a very thinly disguised Trevisa and Berkeley. Um, they're debating whether it's really worth it to translate Latin histories. Um, into english for english lay people and the lord is allowed to make these arguments that crush the cleric so the correct cleric is like it's not necessary to do that lay people don't need to know this stuff we can just um tr- we can just you know explain it to um, lay readers they don't have to be able to read it itself nobody cares about english no one can really read it anyway um and but the lord's arguments kind of crush the cleric you know and he the lord argues that it's very needful to have information. He uses the word information. It's very needful to have information in a language that everyone in a particular area can read of different social statuses. um, And that Um, basically the cleric better do it or he's in trouble. Um, And so this is this very interesting translators apology for undertaking this, this huge task that he's undertaken and used up so much resources of time and parchment and ink um, and financial support to do. Um, So this is kind of his, his apology for having undertaken this um, this big undertaking, but it's also an explanation, a rationalization, for why um, it's worth undertaking these kinds of um, these kinds of goals. Uh,
1: let's talk about historiography. You, you, you use the term radical historiography. What do you mean by that? And then we'll talk about uh, the importance of history in some of his books. So what do you mean by radical uh, historiography?
0: The term radical historiography um, refers to the way that people use historical writing for polemical ends. So, when you're telling a history um, in a very particular way, organizing in a particular way, um, in order to um, to make kind of to kind of get your reader to reach sort of extreme political. Um, ideas and it also, it also refers to the way that historical writers push the claims and the aims of history as far as they can go. Um, so that's what I mean when I'm talking about radical historiography and what I'm talking about with respect to Trevisa is and the Polychronicon is how did he take this idea of a universal history that contains all histories, and which starts with um, Adam and Eve and ends in the English present, and use it to try to source and convey more sort of radical, polemical ideas.
1: i I, sorry, go on, I thought...
0: You go, you go.
1: No, I thought you were... Because I wanted also to ask about the... the, Because in in the book, I'll just read the quote, page 96, to talk about uh, the importance of historiography and how it shows, quote, the transmission of reformist discourse from clergy to laity and from Latin to vernacular. So I was wondering if you could unpack that for us.
0: Sure. Okay, so we're... We're only now like in, you know, the th- late 1380s, early 1390s, um, and we're, we're over 100 years away from the Protestant Reformation. But there's already a lot of what we call proto-Protestant thoughts circulating, especially in Oxford and in Travisa sort of larger circle. And there's, for example, um, a lot of anti-monasticism. There's a lot of like animus about the cult of saints um, and whether people should be praying to saints. Um, There's a lot of uh, concern about there's a lot of sort of reformist slash heretical concerns raised about the doctrine of the Eucharist, there's a lot of stuff floating in the air, which we put under the category that we call Wycliffeism. So ideas that are being promulgated by Travisa's um, colleague um, at Queen's College, Oxford, John Wycliffe. And although uh, Trevisa is not himself like Really, any kind of heretic, um, he's he is very anti-monastic and anti-friars, um, and so he takes the, the he takes a history that's written by a monk at Saint Werburgh's, Randolph Higden, translated into English for an English patron, and inserts into it many many places where. His English reader might object to some practices that are monastic, for example. So, one example is in um, in the Polychronicon, um, Higden talks a lot about St. Patrick's Purgatory. And this was the idea that on Station Island, Donegal, in Ireland, St. Patrick um, tried to convert doubters to Christianity by showing them that there was a hole in the island where they could jump in and they would be in purgatory. So he wanted to show them that purgatory was real. Um, and th- he, and Higden explains that anybody in, who ends up in St. Patrick's purgatory, um, won't burn in hell, but they'll, you know, kind of do their punishment in purgatory and go to heaven. And, Trevisa objects to this and says, this is absolutely ludicrous. This is nonsense. You just have to be you you have to be a good person and, and do good works and, you know, believe in Christian truths. But there's no kind of like get off of hell free pass. Um, like St. Patrick's Purgatory. And this was like a pretty, this was like a pretty reformist thing to say. Um, and there's many places in there where he's using this monastic historiography, but he's also at the same time trying to use it to get to certain reformist ends.
1: Uh, another important contribution of Travisa to English literature and culture is, um, is the way... It, is his, his indexing style, let's say. So can you tell us what the established models of alphabetical indexing that, uh, that was inherited from, from Latin was like, and how John Trevisa kind of changed that? What was it specific about the way, uh, about his indices?
0: Okay, so I thought this was very interesting to me. So in my research, so I was read when I was reading Trevisa's work in Modern Editions, they don't contain any of the indexes that he created. And so when I went to the British Library and started to look at them in manuscript, I saw that Trevis had actually invented like very long wholesale English indexes for his translations, particularly his translation of the Polychronicon. And the manuscripts circulate with both the English manuscripts and his translation circulate with both his English index. And Higdon's original Latin index. And I thought that was curious, too. And then I started to read the index. And it's so ridiculous. Like, and it was, it worked because people copy continued to copy it and and saw a lot of interest and good in it. But it's the most like unmodern index you've ever seen. And in fact, even if you know no Latin, using the original Latin one is easier to use to find what you're looking for in the English than the English index. So his English index is very bizarre. And I realized that it was so bizarre because, like, you can create a reference book in English, but it's such a different problem to start to think about you, creating a finding aid in English when English was not really an official authoritative language of culture. Um, it turns out that what we use today are Latin indexes. Latin indexes are interested in like proper names, like um, Philadelphia, and, or like famous places, um, or famous things in history, like the Red Sea. Or Egypt, or Pharaohs, or Henry VIII, or something like that. Like that's what that's what that's what our English that's what our indexes do. And anybody who's tried to create an index knows that it's you kind of like dumb down whatever you're reading into these proper names. Like it's so hard to get a hold of to explain the complexity of your book when you create an index because, like, aside from proper names, there's only like big concepts like. Um, I don't know, like insomnia or like um, latinity or vernacularity. Like, it's actually really hard to explain what you're doing with indexes. I don't know if you found that. Like, indexes very poorly reflect what you're talking about. And that's in part because we still use the Latin model. Trevisa, who didn't really know what he was doing by trying to create English search terms, had like terms like Norway, but also had uh, key terms like nose cut off or hair's heart substituted for child or wenches fall in wells or the or but. Like, like. so he was trying to create, like, I think he was trying to create a useful index that drew from his English translation, but he had no idea how English could possibly contribute to a finding aid and it was very fascinating for me because you really see kind of english in a point of transition where it wants to do all the work of the of the reference book in latin but no one's quite figured out how to make english authoritative enough and to do that to do that work
1: So, so in a way, the indexes were even interpretive, where they provided. Because I've I've had that problem as you mentioned. I go through sometimes. I want to before reading a book, I go through the indexes, and it doesn't really tell me what I, um, what I'm looking for. But when I read the book, I come across that information. and say, exactly. why wasn't it included there?
0: <laughs> exactly, mm. and so that's why I feel like, Trevis's index which was copied. So it wasn't like it was just useful for one person, although it was probably designed for his original reader, Thomas of Berkeley, but it was copied in, 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 in many other manuscripts um, over the course of a century. And so like, obviously people saw some good in it, but what I, I thought was interesting about it is that it like briefly entertained this idea of a very alternative way of indexing, um, where, like the keywords are not just proper names and places and like very big concepts, but are like very generic and local and kind of sensational, um, and particular. So I, I I thought that was that was a very that was a very interesting realization for me. But it, the other thing about his is that even though it makes like stuff very hard to look up because you're very unlikely to look up nose or like. What or how or like bear, um, it it it. When you do look them up, it takes you to like very fun literary moments in the text, like very sensational, exciting moments. And so there is a certain way in which this index, even though it's really bad um, from a research point of view, is not getting you to information, but it's getting you to like very fun, lively parts of the text. So it's kind of like activating the literariness of this very somber universal history. Um, So I thought that was, that was interesting.
1: (laughs) And, uh, he translated another book, I'm, I'm not going to bother with the Latin pronunciation because I know I'll butcher it, so I'll just go you the English translation, which is on the properties of things. So your, your argument is that in the book, he, he, he not only provides encyclopedic information, but he also, also created a literary style uh, that was very influential in shaping of literary English. Can you talk about the significance of that translation and how John Travisa achieved this?
0: This was the most important chapter for me to write, so because again, when I discovered Trevisa, I couldn't get over how beautiful some of the prose was, and I I felt astonished that no one had really mentioned that before. Like, um, and so it's appropriate. tatibus rerum, I think, is is his best translation. It's a translation of a natural encyclopedia that was very well known, De Proprietatibus Rerum, On the Properties of Things, uh, which was compiled by someone named Bartolomaeus Anglicus in the 13th century at the same time that all those other encyclopedias were being compiled. And it was very successful. It was translated into French for Charles V by someone named Jean Corbechon, And it was in very, very beautiful illuminated manuscripts in the French. It's an obvious choice for someone like for Trevisa to translate. But his translation is very different from the French one. And it cultivates this very ornate style that kind of celebrates variety. So he's always creating doublets, um so uh he's he's where there's none in the original. Um he's always trying to um s- uh switch up the verbs that he's using, even when the original is trying to stick to one verb. Um he he introduces a lot of rhyme, a lot of alliteration. Um he any place where there the original is talking about senses or emotion, he really kind of beefs that up. And what i so one of the things that i notice about that is that he was actually using the encyclopedia to use an en, to make an encyclopedic style so the encyclopedia the natural encyclopedia the latin encyclopedia you know is kind of celebrating the diversity of god's creation by like talking about stones and beverages and geographical territories and like diseases and animals um And Trevisa basically took that idea, but tried to make it a principle, a prose style. So his prose style itself is sort of celebrating variety. And that in itself was interesting. But what I also realized, and I thought just for fun, I'm just going to read through the Encyclopedia Britannica to get a sense of that prose style. And there was so much in common between them, just like what Because, you know, the thing is about information is it has to sound plausible and factual to us, but it also has to sound attractive. And I noticed that the Encyclopedia Britannica did a lot, does a lot to make its information sound pleasing and attractive. Um, And there are so many lines in the Encyclopedia Britannica like that are dead ringers for um, Travisa's lines. And, you know, it wasn't in the scope of the book to do, um, a long chronological history of encyclopedic prose, but I could see that that was the case. And one of my favorite lines in Travisa's translation is he says that woods, um, when you go out in the woods, um, they're so thick with leaves that they're cold with shadow. And if you Google cold with shadow, um, you get a 100 modern books that use the term cold with shadow, A 100 novels when describing um, a landscape use that cold with shadow. And I was like, really? Like, so I realized there is like a big history of encyclopedic prose out there in English that Trevisa is at least partly responsible in creating.
1: That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, and and the, these kind of medieval encyclopedias were also influential in creating a science, a vernacular for science. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so I thought, you know, travis is not the only player out there. And I just, as a comparison, I have a chapter that discusses something called The Fountain of All Sciences or The Book of Sidrak, which is, a, again, a late 13th century natural encyclopedia, um, which also was produced in verse because a lot of informational texts in the Middle Ages are produced in verse as well as prose. And one of the, this is also a totally like unstudied text, but it's so fun. And it's basically all questions and answers. So um, it has a Lord asking a philosopher questions like, "Why is the sea salty?" Um, and "How how smooth and round is the Earth?" and um, "Why do clouds get dark when it's raining?" Like you know, and and all of these questions are phrased in the way that um, the text thinks a layperson. Um, a person who only has very general understanding would ask these questions. And when you type those questions into your Google browser, you realize that that's how we're getting all our information right now, is by asking questions and putting them in our Google browser. And a lot of the times my Google browser would complete the question for me before I finished typing it in. So then I would type in like, why is the sea salty? And I'd say, why is the sea? And it would give me salty because... So many people have asked this exact question. It would take me to Reddit or Quora or, you know, national science programs where people are asking these questions. And my science is terrible. So, like, I'm basically on the same page as, like, the medieval reader. Um, So one of the things that I realized from studying medieval encyclopedias is that they're always anticipating the question. Like, they're always giving you information with a question in mind that you might have. And I think that's a really important kind of connection between medieval and modern literary science or scientific literature. And just just one other thing that they have in common is that general lay science today is not only kind of formulated through questions that you type into your browser, but it also often really um, blurs the objective and subjective information. So like uh, in the Middle Ages, they're asking questions in encyclopedias like, why is the sea salty? It turns out I had no idea why the sea was salty, but also like, um, should you love your spouse more than your child and why? Which seems like a very subjective question. But when I was, um, listen, I listened in my car on the way to work to, um, KYW news radio. And there's a scientist that comes and tries to give like information for lay people. And one of his questions while I was writing the book, one of his questions was, um, do we love people that we have more in common with or less in common with? And it was like such a medieval question. And I was like, that's a subjective question. That's not an objective question. But there was an answer, which was like, we, the answer was, we love people that we think we have stuff in common with, even if we don't. (laughs) And I was like, how is that science? But like, it's like that, like blurring of objective and subjective is very, a very important part, I think, of general, general lay science. And I think that um, it's the medieval, these medieval texts are laying the foundation for that.
1: Uh, and let's talk about the last chapter. Uh, you use the term holy encyclopedism. W- what do you mean by that?
0: Well, that's partly an unfortunate joke because the person I'm studying is named Batman. Um but so holy encyclopedism was just like my little in-joke of myself about that. But what what holy encyclopedism is really about is about um, post-medieval uses of medieval reference books and how does, asking the question, like what kind of information gets canonized in the way that we speak of a literary canon, but what kind of information gets canonized? Um, and how do, why do some things start to be seen as superstitious or fantastical where others are not? I mean, it's basically the idea of that. Just to give you an example, this is a famous example, but it's about spontaneous generation. So in the idea of spontaneous generation, as you might know, that because people couldn't see how like mosquitoes bred or, or gnats, um, or sometimes even mice, um, to the famous example is barnacle geese. They note that a very northern bird, maybe puffins. Um, no one could see how they laid their eggs or how they procreated. Um, they thought until the 18th century that a lot of these creatures were generated from rotting flesh or decaying wood. Um, and so, spontaneous generation is something that had like a very long shelf life, from like Aristotle, you know, to the late 18th century. Um, and so I'm kind of, I was kind of interested in there is like, why, why did people continue reading medieval encyclopedias like Trevisa? Um, what dropped out and how did they add in new information? Because for medieval authors, they were less interested in finding new information than in compiling authorities and putting them in a comprehensive form and making them available, and sorting, and organizing. Um, But in Batman's day, we're already in the era of European expansionism, and European writers are are finding what seems to them to be new information, which they're very disturbed about, because they thought that nothing was new, (laughs) that like surely the Greeks and the Romans knew everything already. So they were really shocked when they found out things they didn't know in the global South or in the Americas um so yeah so that's what that chapter is about is like you know what is new information and how do you like sort of attach it to old information and when do you decide that you're going to debunk old information and it's not always because you have a new scientific methodology um it's, it's also because you're just experiencing like the world in new ways
1: and, and that's the reason, like, because I really like this sentence in your book, page 223, that you said that this quest to organize knowledge is is kind of same, is the same as the violence that drives colonial expansion. So that's the connection we just mentioned.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, Batman was like an armchair explorer. Like, he didn't actually go anywhere. He just received information um, and tried to incorporate it into his medieval source. Um, but he understood that there was a cost to acquiring that new information, which is an interesting thing about him. There's like a financial cost to acquiring new information, but he also understood that there was a cost in terms of human life. Um, And so, for example, um, one of the things that he was interested in trying to figure out whether it was real or not, were Amazons. Um, And I don't know if Trevisa ever thought there were really Amazons or not, but authorities had been saying for a couple of thousand years that there was a tribe of women living in somewhere like Scythia, wherever that was, because it was kind of a made up place, um, and that Alexander the Great discovered and they were, you know, very fierce. And, um, so in, in the new world, as it were, um, Explorers came back and said that they had discovered a tribe of Amazons and hence the Amazon. Um, And Batman is, he's skeptical about the costs of finding out that information. And he tells us that the Spanish explorers, uh, colonializers who discovered the Amazons in the new world also shot them to death. Um, And so He's very aware that his having this new knowledge about Amazons is, um, is based on people, you know, exterminating them. And so, you, you know, it's very interesting. This is like a world Travisa could never have imagined. Um, but Batman's trying to synthesize sort of the old and the new.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Let me ask you one final question. Is there any other project or book you're currently working on?
0: Yes. So um, I just started working on um, a book on animals and medieval literature and culture, um, which is commissioned by a little boutique press in London called Reaction Books, um, which makes very... Beautiful, very artistically beautiful books, which I'm excited about because they said I can have up to 100 images. Um, so I'm really thrilled about that. And so, yeah, so this is like a very challenging assignment, but um, I'm teaching a course on pre-modern animals and um, I'm very excited to be writing this book. And I think one of the things I'm going to be stressing in this book is that um, pre-modern culture contains a lot of... Um, really radical and out there ideas about animals, the relationship between human and non-human animals um, that could really sort of enrich animal studies in the present. Mm.
1: Yeah, I remember I read somewhere some time ago that I don't know if it was common or not, but there were a lot of cases of animal being put on trial in the in France, for example. Yeah, so well, we can't wait to <laughs> to read that book, and hopefully, we might be able to talk to you about the book uh, soon on New Books Network again.
0: Thank you, and thank, <laughs> thank you, you so much.
1: much. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on New Books Network.
0: Thank you.